Well, friends, all through January, we're asking the question, why? It's a question little children love to ask, isn't it? Eat your dinner. Why? Because you'll be hungry if you don't. Why? Why is a natural human response. Last week we asked the question, why creation? Why did God create the universe and human beings within it in the first place? And we saw that he is creator, relator, and restorer. This morning we are asking why the incarnation, and that's just a fancy way of asking why God became a human being in Jesus. And when you put it like that, God became a human being. It's mind-blowing, isn't it? Absolutely mind-blowing. The creator of the universe became a human being. But that's what's at the heart of our faith. There was a moment when God stepped onto the stage of human history in the person of Jesus Christ. But what does it mean, and why did he do it? Well, in the early days of the Second World War, a soldier on the way to his unit said goodbye to his wife and infant son. He kissed them goodbye with the words, don't worry, I'll be back sooner than you think. Five, more than five long years of war were to elapse before he saw them again. But every day, his wife would take his picture and show the picture to his little boy with the words, look, that's your daddy. Won't it be great when he comes home? Of course, she had no guarantee whether he would come home at all. One day when the child was gazing at the picture, he looked at his mother and said wistfully, Oh, mummy, wouldn't it be wonderful if daddy could just step out of the picture? And friends, that's precisely what Jesus did when he took human form. God stepped out of the picture. We all have pictures of God in our minds, don't we? Some, of course, are more helpful than others. I've got a series of pictures of God in my study. One of them is of the divine policeman sitting there on the clouds with his hand up. Hello, 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 what's going on here? One of them is the divine Santa Claus with lots of presents to give to people. One of them is the, of the divine rescuer. And the picture is of a bank of cloud, and out of the bank of cloud, on a long rope, comes one of those um, rescue rings, one of those, um, I forget what they're called. Thank you. I'm glad you came. <laughs> Life belts, yes. And, of course, there's the inevitable old man with a long white beard. 
Well, the Jews, God's people, were told that they were not to make any kind of image of the invisible God. Remember in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not make unto thyself any graven image or the likeness of anything in the heaven above nor in the earth beneath. Thou shalt not bow down to them nor worship them, for I thy God am a jealous God. Now, why should God say you mustn't make an image, you mustn't give form to your image of God? Well, the answer, quite simply, is that he had in mind that he was going to provide an image of God himself, which would be infinitely better than anything any human being could think of. So that when we look at the Lord Jesus Christ, we can actually see and hear and understand what God is like. When God stepped into human history, there were no flaming chariots. There was no royal entourage to greet him. He stepped onto the stage of of, of human history as a helpless infant whose bed was a feeding trough. I want to give you two reasons why God did this. Two reasons for the incarnation. And this is the first. God took human form in Jesus because that was the only way in which he could reveal the truth and the depth of his love to us. Or to put it another way, he became man so that he could reveal God. He became human so that he could reveal God's true nature. Dorothy read to us that passage from Philippians chapter 2. You'll find it on page 1179 in the Church Bibles. It's a passage that some of us know almost off by heart. And in a sense, I'm sorry to take you back to it. Um, I hope you don't find it repetitive. There's so much in this passage, actually, that even if you preached on it every Sunday, you couldn't exhaust its truth. In verse 5, Paul says that Our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Okay, what was the attitude of Christ Jesus? Well, in verses 6 and following, he unpacks it. He explains what Jesus' nature was, what his attitude was. First of all, in verse 6, he explains that the eternal Son who became incarnate in Jesus was divine, truly divine, who being in very nature God. Now, when I use the word heretic, I wonder what image comes into your mind. It's not a very fashionable word. And in a postmodern society where everybody is supposed to have their own truth, where the idea of an absolute truth which excludes error is very much out of fashion, the idea of someone being a heretic is frowned upon. But you know, you do have to get the doctrine right. Spurgeon said, we're dealing with men who will either be lost or saved, and they will certainly not be saved by erroneous doctrine. 
I dare say it's happened to you. You're walking along the road and a car slows down. And the window comes down and a worried face looks at you and says, excuse me, could you direct me to so-and-so-and-so-and-so? I want to get to Skeynes Hill. I want to get to wherever. Could you direct me? And if you're anything like me, you begin to panic. You think, now, is it right or left? Now, is it, is it, is it the first turning left? or, the, or the, Now, just as you get to the... And they end up more confused than, 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 than you are. But you've got to give them the right directions. It would be no good, would it, if someone said, I want to get to Ardingly, and you said, oh, well, you're on the high street in Linfield. Turn left, go straight round down, down towards Haywards Heath. Well, that, 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 it would be wrong. You, you'd be pointing them in the wrong direction. They'd get to the wrong place. They'd never get to their destination. You've got to get the directions right. And the same thing is true about eternal directions. If we give people wrong information about the Lord Jesus Christ and our necessity to respond to him, they're going to end up in the wrong place, aren't they? And I don't want to be in the place where I stand before my maker and he says to me, why did you deliberately mislead people? And it's one of the characteristics of heresy that somehow it always tries to rob Jesus of his divine nature. Way back in the history of the church, there was a man called Arius. He was an Egyptian Christian priest who was probably passed over for promotion. I say probably passed over from, for promotion because the information um, about that comes from people who didn't like Arius very much. So maybe they were being a bit naughty. Anyway, we'll leave that aside. He was cross. And he invented a version of the Christian faith which he disseminated and which a tremendous number of people adopted. In fact, quite a, a big section of the Christian church adopted for a couple of hundred years, which robbed Jesus of his divine nature. Arius had a kind of following. And these people would go around the streets chanting, a little Greek verse. And in English it goes like this. There was a time when the word was not. There was a time when the word was not. The word is the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember how in John's Gospel it says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Well, they chanted this little, this little verse. And as I say, a tremendous amount of the church actually believed them and accepted the Arian understanding of the nature of Christ. And it took a great effort from wonderful people like Athanasius. Have you heard of Athanasius? The wonderful man. It was through people like him who struggled to establish the biblical truth of the nature of Christ that we have, the Christian faith today. So when you're saying your prayer of thanksgiving, don't forget to thank God for Athanasius. The Jehovah's Witnesses, you see, they have a, an Arian understanding 
of the nature of Christ. They believe that Jesus is an agent of Jehovah, but actually not divine himself. And in Colossians chapter 1, chapter one and verse 16, they do something very naughty with the scriptures. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 16 says this, through him, that is through Christ, all things were created. Now you understand what the word, all, all the words, all things mean. It's a fairly comprehensive and inclusive phrase. And in Greek, <clears throat> the neuter plural of things is panta. It's what the Greek says in Colossians 1.16. Panta, all things. Through him, all things were created. In the New World translation of the Bible, the Jehovah's Witness version of the Bible, there's another word inserted into that verse in big square brackets. They do at least put the brackets around it to say that it has been inserted. But it changes the meaning of the verse completely. Instead of saying, through him all things were created, it says, through him all other things were created. They put the word other in to establish their understanding that Jesus was first created and then he created everything else. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says through him, all things were created. Now, that's a simple statement. And if through him all things were created, he cannot actually be himself part of creation because creation was created through him. And here in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 6, it says, who being in very nature God. It's a simple statement, isn't it? But he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. He didn't hang on to it and say, this is mine. I am equal with the Father and I'm going to hang on to it and I'm never going to let it go. He didn't do that. He opened his fingers and he let it go. And he took the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, as a human being, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And friends, that must have had a terrific impact on the people who heard it for the first time. Because they were used to crucifixion. They were used to seeing the putrefying remains of criminals hanging on crosses by the side of the road. They were used to hearing their screams and their moans as they died of exposure and suffocation. They knew what crucifixion meant. And Jesus wasn't some good, radical with good ideas. He was incarnate God. And he was crucified. Why? Well, that's a question Ron Goodenough is going to uh, try to answer next week. Why the cross? Let me say this without stealing his thunder. Jesus died like that because he had to, because there was no other way to mend the breach between us and God. Why the incarnation? Because, you see, it was the only way that God could reveal his true nature. Words, well, they can only go so far. The word had to become flesh. Why the incarnation? Because it was the only way to reveal God's true nature.
That's the first reason. The second reason is this. God became incarnate in Jesus to reveal man's true nature. Yes, he became incarnate to reveal God's true nature, but he also became incarnate to reveal man's true nature. See, there are two words for man in Greek. There's anair, which means male, specifically male. And there's anthropos, which means, and my Greek professor used to make a joke of this always, man embracing woman. In other words, human, mankind. And when God became incarnate in Christ, he revealed our true nature, what we were created to be. Last week, we were thinking about God being creator, relator, and restorer. And if you remember, I shared with you how the Lord Jesus becoming human restored the relationship between us and God. And he did this by, as it were, recapitulating everything that Adam did. And let's remember that Adam is not a personal name. Well, it is now. Lots of people called Adam. But actually, in the scriptures, Adam is not a personal name. It means the man. It's the Hebrew word for the man, Adam. And when the man, human beings, disobeyed God and lost their friendship with God, he was determined to restore that relationship. And I shared with you how a wonderful second century bishop called Irenaeus explained how God was able to do this, how he was able to restore our relationship with him. Based on Paul's teaching in Romans chapter 5, Irenaeus said that Jesus lived such a perfect life that into every step into which Adam had poured disobedience, Jesus poured obedience. He recapitulated everything that Adam did. Instead of disobedience, instead of turning away from God, instead of being separated from God, he was constantly at one with his father, filling his life and his words and his being with obedience. Being what man was created to be in the first place. He was the second Adam. We're going to sing about the second Adam in a moment, John Henry Newman's hymn. O wisest love, that flesh and blood that did in Adam fail, should strive afresh against the foe, should strive and should prevail. When we look at Jesus, we see God's true nature, yes, but we also see our true nature. We look at him and we, and we say, that's what I was supposed to be. I'm not supposed to be a grumpy old man. I am most of the time. I'm not supposed to be selfish. I am. I'm not supposed to be disingenuous and dishonest and disloyal. I am. But that's not what I'm supposed to be, and that's not what God intends me to be. Actually, he intends me to be like his son, and he intends you to be like his son as well, because Jesus is the template for what human beings are supposed to be. Why the incarnation? Because it was the only way 
to reveal God's true nature and it was the only way to reveal man's true nature. So when you look at Jesus, you not only see what God is like, you see what human beings are supposed to be like, what you and I are supposed to be. And if you think, well, I shall never be like Jesus, don't underestimate the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. And don't forget the promise in 1 John 3 verse 2, dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. God has a plan for you and me. He doesn't want us to be selfish and mean, vindictive and unforgiving. He wants us to be like his son. And in Ephesians 4, 12 and 13, Paul says this. God has given us gifts so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Don't be content with second best. Don't think second-class discipleship is any good. It isn't. Demand the best. That's what God has in store for you and me if we let him achieve it.